Rise and shine for National Biscuit Month with Hardy's Famous Buttermilk Biscuits. Made with love from scratch, fresh all morning. It's not the easy way, but it's the right way. Hardy's Goodness in the Making. I didn't like Spinal Tap. When it came out, <laughs> sadly, we were living that. And it was sort of like, yeah, I don't know, man. I can't watch that. Because it really did feel like we were living that in a particular way that was not funny. Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Melendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is Tommy Stinson, who not only played bass in one of the greatest rock and roll bands ever, The Replacements, but also has been a member of Guns N' Roses and Soul Asylum. We talked with Tommy about the time The Replacements pissed off Kiss's Gene Simmons so badly that he walked out of their show, why their tour with Tom Petty turned into such a disaster, and how much fun it is to ride a mechanical bull with Axl Rose. So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show. It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not too much. There's too much perspective now. Alex, you and I are mammoth replacements fans, wouldn't you say? Yeah, maybe as much as we're fans of Spinal Tap even. Yes, and that's why it is so surprising to hear our guest today, replacements bassist Tommy Stinson, tell us flat out he is not a fan of the movie This is Spinal Tap. Well, Alan, it's tricky. I mean, even Nancy Wilson from Heart admitted to finding the movie painfully funny, as in it touched some sort of nerve for her and her band. and. Of course, David Cross told us he'd never even seen the film. Well, David was, of course, yanking our dumb chains. But (laughs) some musicians find the movie cuts too close to the bone, being about a band on the decline. Of course, I can't relate at all because my band never had much of an incline to actually experience a decline. (laughs) Yeah, well, your history is like jumping out of a first-story window. You know, that was unnecessary. I already called attention to my... (laughs) misfortune. So that was just piling on. (laughs) All right. Okay. Okay. Sorry. But you have to admit, it's to the credit of Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer, Michael McKeon, and Rob Reiner that they were able to be so funny and absurd while sticking so tightly to reality. Well, you know what they say, nothing hurts like the truth. And a root canal. But I think that's the right effing perspective, old chum. And speaking of the truth, let's get to our chat with Tommy. But first, listeners, Please choose your poison and follow us on at least one of the socials, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We're on all three. And you can be the first to know about new episodes, Spinal Tap Moment fun facts, and other nonsense that we post there. We'll be right back after a short break. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died 
and while we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. And now a man whose new band, Cowboys in the Campfire, just released their first album, Wronger, Tommy Stinson. Tommy, it's enormously gratifying to have you here today. Alex and I are huge fans of yours, The Replacements, Bash and Pop, as well as your newish band, Cowboys in the Campfire. But I have a question. Why Cowboys in the Campfire, not around it? Do you have a Buddhist influence or something with the self-immolation there? No, 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 no. It started really with Chip and I were touring around just kind of as Tommy Stinson's solo thing, but doing these other songs that turned into Cowboys in the Campfire. And uh, we were just joking around and, you know, we came up with a name. And then he did two watercolor paintings of said Cowboys in the Campfire, which are beautiful and cool. And so it stuck. And we ended up making a big backdrop and we started traveling around with that and calling ourselves Cowboys in the Campfire. It was really that quick and easy. Nice. And also, it's kind of funny that Chip is your ex-wife's uncle. Yeah. Funny enough, right? And that's Chip Roberts. What does Chip play in the band? He's my guitar player, lap steel player, guru, really. He's also a first class chef on the side. Wow. Really? Or maybe playing with my asses on the side. I don't know. One of the two is a side <laughs> With the Cowboys and the Campfire album, you could have called it Writer, which kind of in the spirit of Spinal Tap is like being right and going one more, like taking it to 11, one bit writer. Yeah, but you yeah. called it Wronger, which is maybe taking wrong to 11. What were you thinking about with that name? You know, it's a chipism. Hmm. One step more wrong than wrong, I suppose, or maybe a few steps in our case. Um, <laughs> it was just a chip term he came up with. He's always coming up with these uh, little things. I guess the two of us together come with all kinds of wordplay and, you know, they turn into songs and stuff like that. I think you made a real accommodation to the new world in that you acknowledge that album sequencing doesn't matter anymore and you put your single as the last song on the album, right? Oh, contraire. <laughs> uh, sequencing is very huge. <laughs> Knowing which song was going to be the single comes out after the sequencing. Ah. My dear, lovely friend, Peter Jesperson, who's my musical guru and go-to for everything and above, him and his son, Autry, they executive produced this thing and did the sequencing. And 
if you ask Peter his two cents on what made him think this is the right sequencing of the record, he'll tell you, this is just the way this record's supposed to be. <laughs> you go, okay then. Right. <laughs> and this is the sequence that this is the only way it would work. And sure as shit, when you play it from top to bottom, it works. And that is one of Peter's very many uh, musical attributes to his credit. And cut to, well, what song should we go for as a single? Everyone thought Dream would be the one, and so it happened to be the last song on the record. That's how that worked. What's the second song that's going to be the second single? The first song. <laughs> <laughs> that's called Ziggin' and Zaggin'. Yeah. You know, there's that whole theory of album tracks and singles and all this stuff, the way we used to term things when people made records back in the day. I don't really subscribe to it, never really have, but when I have to come to these crossroads of things that really I either never understood or have a care to understand, I always refer to Peter because Peter's the guy that there's very few of them left on this planet that are so involved in music that is so much in their body and blood short of playing a musical instrument that that's his craft, you know? listening and assessing and coming up with these kinds of things. So, Tommy, I want to share a story. One of my good friends, a guy who grew up in Green Bay with me, ended up in Minnesota, this guy, Scott Bodecker. And I know that name, I think. I know you guys hung out a few times. And he told me this great story where you put him on the guest list for a replacement show in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So he gladly drove the 650 miles each direction to go to the show and came to find you before the set and located you like in the loading bay. You were pushing Paul Westerberg around in a grocery cart. <laughs> and in a really happy way, that reminded me of all the silly shit that bands do Yeah, you know, to pass the time when they're on the road. And so I wondered, could you think of a couple of other quirky pastimes beyond pushing bammers around in shopping carts that stick out to you over the course of 40 years on the road? Well, there was one particularly funny episode with Axl Rose that I'll never forget because it was really sweet and it was really funny as all fuck. We were in Florida, I think it was Miami, and it was after show, we were hanging out in a bar, and I think it was just our crew of people and a few local after show people that were there, and they had a bronching buffalo thing that you could ride in the corner. And now, of course, it was padded all around, but you know, we got into the cups a little bit and we were taking turns on it. And my memory serves me correct. We just, we basically were laughing our asses off for hours, <laughs> just both of us trying this thing. And it kept throwing us off like really quickly. I mean, some people actually ride it and can actually last a little bit. We both got thrown the fuck <laughs> off and we're laughing. We're just, I remember it being one of the times where, I mean, we had a lot of laughs. There were many good laughs with that guy. He's funny as shit. But this was one where I just remember waking up the next day laughing. It was still so funny because we're still in our rock wear. <laughs> we're like hanging out with people and the whole thing. And we just couldn't have looked more stupid and had more fun <laughs> looking stupid riding this thing. It was great. Certainly Chip and I have gotten into some pretty funny junk. Well, <laughs> not so funny junk, really. Um, Let's hear it. 
Let's hear it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we, <laughs> we were heading into Chapel Hill and we had to stop. We needed something from the store. We stopped at a Walmart off the freeway and we go in and get whatever it was we needed. And we come out and the clouds are real dark. And we get in the car and we're going and we're going on the freeway looking in the rear view mirror. Really, 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 really dark. And just looks like we, we outraced whatever it was that was coming because it was coming up our heel pretty quick. But we get to our gig and we pull up and it's pouring fucking rain. It's just going bananas. And we go in and we sit down at the bar and order a couple of drinks and look on the news and it's right there on the TV. Uh, it's rapidly, came straight down. It's turning into a fairly strong tornado at the moment. It is. A tornado hits outside of Chapel Hill, and we're just both laughing because they spelt it wrong. And it stayed on the TV forever. And we're just sitting there laughing, and people are kind of, and it's really <laughs> shitty weather out. It looks like it might be coming our way. We're just laughing our ass off at this TV. People are kind of, what are you guys laughing about? We're just like, <laughs> and it sat there for the whole time. We laughed our ass off. It was a tornado. <laughs> right outside of chapel but it turns out we've narrowly escaped it they showed the map because it was just happening as we were there and it just kind of skirted where we were wow but we saw the freeway where we were it mowed through that area we were like five minutes we'd have been right in it and god knows what had happened i had a band called the falling walendas yeah, you and did. <laughs> we were considered, yes, I did. And we were considered the meteorologically challenged band because for some reason, anytime we would step outside, there would be biblical weather. The last time I saw the replacements was at Summerfest and we used to play Summerfest often. And in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee. And we were there and I remember it was a huge crowd there and we were ready to play and we were so excited. And as soon as we got on, we saw like this Independence Day cloud coming in off the lake. And within three minutes, it had emptied the audience out and, you know, nearly electrocuted us. And that happened time and time again. Any other good weather stories? Yeah. I had a lot of those with GNR. You know, we did have the one gig it wasn't rock in Rio, but it was a gig in Rio that we were going to play. I say were because we didn't make that. Five minutes before they opened the doors, before the rush of all the folks that were waiting to get in five minutes before, a freak tornado went through Rio. Whoa. They'd never even had one on record at this point. It collapsed the stage, everything, everything gone. Lucky for us. One crew guy broke a leg, and that was it of all of it. Wow. But um, five minutes later, that whole crowd would have been right there, and they would have gotten crushed by the stage and the lighting and the entire thing. Turns out they didn't actually have it secured the way they should have had the staging secured for such an outdoor event. It would have been catastrophic in the worst way if that had happened. But like I said, that five minutes, man, and... Uh, the bar after that was pretty festive for all the crew members that came there and were like really grateful that they didn't get hurt in any way and that they all lived through it. All the gear was totaled, but yeah, wow. pretty close call that one. That was Rio de Janeiro, Brazil you're talking about, right? Well, it wasn't Rio, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> that's Rio. Yeah. There's actually, yeah, 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 there's yeah. actually a Rio, yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah, that's an amazing memory. I read, Tommy, in an interview that you said your craziest show was a Guns N' Roses show at Rock in Rio. 
was it another instance you're talking about? That wasn't really an incident. It was just like the first time playing in front of what they said was probably a couple hundred thousand people, but what the reports were after was is that was closer to five hundred thousand people. But it was our first big gig on a big gigantic stage like that as the new Guns N' Roses or whatever. We weren't prepared for the lack of sound because we had in your monitors and all this stuff going on and uh. We couldn't hear anything. I mean, you could hear the audience going through Axel's vocal mic. Wow. We couldn't huh. even hear him singing through the thing. It was like just bananas. We made it through that, and everyone seemed to think it was kind of a historic gig and all that stuff. But I'd say we probably sounded terrible because I don't think anyone could really follow anything. <laughs> we were all guessing even what song we were on. <laughs> I saw GNR version 1.5 with several original members of the band, including Slash and Izzy and Duff, as well as Axel, of course, at the Target Center in Minneapolis back in 1982. And Soundgarden was the opener, and they did their 45-minute set, and they were off stage by, let's say, 8.15. And then there was a two-hour delay because Axel had been at the North Stars hockey game and didn't show up for the gig until after it was over. <laughs> and in the interim, the crowd was getting kind of rowdy, and the camera guys were filming girls in their seats doing strip teases and projecting them up on the jumbo monitors. And the place was really <laughs> feeling a bit on edge. I felt like I was being welcomed to the jungle that night. You know, I was thinking... Going from a place like Rock and Rio in front of half a million people, and you still play clubs. You know, the one time I saw the replacements was at a beautiful theater in Madison, Wisconsin, which was kind of a sit-down place, which felt almost like an unreplacements sort of venue. Is there a Spinal Tap moment from like an amazing venue you can think of and a Spinal Tap moment from a club that both stand out to you? We didn't really fare well in the theater scene because of the sit-down thing. That was such an awkward thing. And unfortunately, too, they were also very expensive to play. So hmm. cut from going from club venues where you're selling them out and you're making money to going to theater venues where you're paying all the production costs and all that stuff, and you're making about a third of what you normally make, but you're playing in front of more people. Kind of stupid. Right. <sighs> Shenanigans in clubs. I mean, books and books written about that. <laughs> One of the funnier ones I could just think of off the top of my head was the time that we played CBGBs in New York where I think we had just gotten signed to or were about to get signed to Warner Brothers. And I want to say it was even maybe an unannounced gig even. But we're getting ready to play and, you know, we're all in our replacements finery, if you will. And um, <laughs> Gene Simmons walks in and I think he may have walked in with someone else from the KISS crew. And he walks in, he's got a suit and tie on, he looks all sharp. He stands right there, kind of in front of Paul and I's side of the stage, and he's just sitting there. And we start doing Black Diamond, and, <laughs> and we're drunk, and we're sucking it good. And he's just like, and he turns around and just storms out in kind of a disgusted way. And I think at that very moment, I, I think I felt like we've made it. <laughs> we're at the top. That's awesome. Yeah, but you know, the, the club... That transition, not so good. That transition or going into playing sheds with Tom Petty, not so good for us. Wasn't the most fun tour ever. Can you tell us a little bit about the Petty thing? I know how it ended and it's pretty Spinal Tap-esque. Yeah, well, couldn't have been sweeter people except for their road crew, which is a bunch of assholes. But, mm. you know, we didn't do so good on that tour because 
you play in front of these sheds and the first 5,000 people that have the 5,000 seats that are in front of the stage, they come when you're done. So we played to empty seats that smelt like a fucking constant whiff of bong smell, of bong <laughs> smoke. Because the road crew would sit in the back, tuning up their guitars during our whole set, getting completely stoned before they went on. So we would get the contact high in front of nobody. It was terrible and it stunk. We hated it. And we didn't do so good on that one. And there wasn't really a, <laughs> wasn't really a funny gig per se, except... I do believe we were playing Nashville, and we got their wives to borrow us dresses. <laughs> they knew, and their wives knew, and their kids knew that we were not having it because we're playing in front of nobody. Our fans were way in the back on the grass. And so by Nashville, we're getting to that place. And anything to make us have fun and shenanigans. And so each of them borrowed us a dress, and we went out in the fucking petty wives' dresses. And had one fun gig, if I may say so, and that was it. And had it not been for the fact that Paul loved that fucking Full Moon Fever record, we would have never done that tour. So you can blame him for that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Do you remember the venue in Wisconsin, Alpine Valley, uh, amphitheater outside of Milwaukee? Mm -hmm. Anyway, the Bodines were opening for Elvis Costello there. And similar situation... It felt somewhat like a hometown gig for them because of being in Wisconsin. But same deal, all the reserve seats were empty when the Bodines went on. And so Sammy Giannis, the singer, he invited the crowd down. Mm -hmm. And security, I guess, in their wisdom, got out of the way. So the lawn crowd came down in the reserve seats, of course, really pissed off the promoter, pissed off the venue, created a lot of hell. But he was undoubtedly responding to the thing you've just described. Now that you mentioned that anecdote right there, there was one gig where I don't remember exactly what the deal was, but Tom had sound checked and we were getting ready to sound check. And as we were sound checked, Tom was in a total mood. And by the way, he was a real sweetheart to us. I remember sitting, talking with him and having a really great conversation about stuff. And he really didn't seem to like being on the road. He liked making records and being in the studio. That's where his fun was. But he, you know, he just does it because that's what you do. But um, he got on a chair and he was folding up chairs and putting them back. Huh. He fucking didn't want any seats in front of him or in front of us. I don't remember what the deal was, but he was really, he was really in a tear about it. And he's like, get these fucking seats out of here. I had a whole thing about it and they cleared the fucking seats out. And um, I don't know why that was exactly, if it was because, you know, we were complaining about it or because he was just sick of seeing people sitting down while he's playing. I don't know. It was one of the two, but it was a pretty notable moment. Hey friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? 
I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. There's another scene in Spinal Tap, which I think you'll have a unique perspective on. It's where Nigel talks about David and how they're closer than brothers. Your brother Bob was in replacements with you, and you kind of developed a brotherly relationship, as a lot of us do with our bandmates. With Paul, do you think there's a difference in that kind of dynamic? You know, it's my feeling that if you're in a group, you travel around so closely together, you're going to be like brothers no matter what. The four of us became closer in some ways as time went on, especially Paul and I, I suppose. The older I got, the more I grew up, the more he grew down, <laughs> whichever the case may be. Yeah. Got it. The replacement's second to last show was in Milwaukee in the summer of 1991. And I was going to go to that show. And my boss decided to call an early morning meeting the next morning. And in very un-rock and roll fashion, I opted for sleep and brain clarity instead of going to that show. Do you have any memories of that second to last replacement show at Summerfest in Milwaukee? Not a one. <laughs> I'd have to snort some Prevagen to get on that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Prevagen is interesting because, you know, Spinal Tap is basically an aging band and we're all older at this point than Spinal Tap was in that movie. How have you kept your music and your interest fresh over the years? You know, I keep pushing myself. I like the process of making records and recording and performing. I still have a good time with it. I take little breaks from it to kind of switch up my vibe and get a fresh take on things as I go along. But I'm always pushing myself musically one way or the other to try and create something rather than just a three-chord rock song, Marshall Lamp and a Les Paul Jr. You know, I try to venture outside a little bit. When you do that, I think you keep it interesting. Chip and I, when we made this record, we started to hear the duo versions of these songs and kind of slowly add things here and there where we felt like they needed a little something else going on. And this was the first record I'd ever sat and listened to a song and thought, hey, I wonder what if strings were on that song? And so we had this song, Hey Man, that we recorded a string section for, wondering what that would sound like. And these days with the technology the way it is, it made it easy for us to find out what that would sound like and to have some friends play on that. So it worked out really good. Same with the horn section on the first song of the record, Here We Go Again. There was a guitar riff there and it was like, well, geez, what else could this use? Well, how about if we have the horns do the guitar riff and then the guitar does something else? It kind of opened up a whole other thing. Lucky for me, I happened to know the Mighty Mighty Boss tones and was able to hook that up nice. and get their horn section to play on that. Those kind of little things, the little things that make you go, wow, so they were able to do that. What else could I, you know? And so cut to going into 
writing new songs right now and working on new material right now. I've got my sights set on bigger things still or different things, really. Not bigger, bigger, louder record. Not like that, more just like interesting things. I only stumbled across even the ukulele part. I bought a ukulele in Hawaii 15 years ago, whatever, and I really liked the sound of it. The first thing I did, I wrote a song on it. And so, you know, I mess around with instruments and things come to me. And that's kind of how it works. I have a 20-year-old daughter and she pretty much feeds me new music. That helps a lot. Are you searching out new bands? I stumble across music more than I seek out new music. People will tell me different things that I'll be into or I'll hear something on the radio one way or the other and I'll follow up on it. Or just being out on the road playing people and stuff like that. Yeah, I find stuff. Yeah, I'm always into something, whether I'm producing something, making my own records with Chip, Cowboys, or Fashion Pop, or whatever. I'm always into something. In preparing for this conversation, I watched a hilarious MTV News interview with you and Paul talking to Kurt Loder from 89. And you guys were talking about a lot of the lies that are told in the music business. Like, don't worry about it. Your album's doing great. You and he were both so funny. You were doing this gesture. You'd say something that wasn't true. And then you do this thing where you'd put your hand up to your face and stretch out your arm like you were pulling out a Pinocchio nose. And Kurt asked you, what do you guys think about the music of the 80s? When we look back on it decades later, what's going to really stand out? You sort of looked and you thought about it for a second, Tommy. And then you, you said, nothing. I don't think anything. And then you said, yeah, and Peter Buck is such a great guitar player. And then you kind of did this <laughs> gesture and that kind of thing. And Oops. <laughs> as it turns out, by pure coincidence, later this afternoon, I am going to a barbecue at Corin Tucker from Slater Kinney's house. Peter Buck will very likely be there because he and Corin and Scott McAuffey and others play in this band called Filthy Friends. So anyway, I just sort of curious, as you look back at it now, now we are truly decades later yeah. from the 80s, what are you thinking? Um, one of my favorite records from the 80s, Hounds of Love, came on my playlist the other day, and I listened to it with great reverence, and I was like, that was a fucking great record. Kate Bush. Yeah. Yeah, it got emotional about it, because it really, that whole period of time, 1986, it was really a special time, and the... And I had my moment with that, and I'll leave it at that. Where can our listeners follow what you're doing? For any information you want to hear about the Cowboys and the Campfire new record, Wronger. You can find it on TommyStinson.com and you'll see dates, merch, record information, interviews, stuff, things. We'll be right there in the TommyStinson.com link and, uh, you know, on the Facebooks and the socials of all sorts. Fantastic. I want to just say Fast and Hard is probably the song that comes into my head more than almost any song and it's something I need to hear every once in a while just to get my juices going. <laughs> Very good. Well, yeah. thank you for that. I appreciate All it. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for your time. Gentlemen, have a great weekend. Great weekend. Tommy Stinson, ladies and gentlemen. Enough said. 
Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on the socials at TMEP Show. You can join our mailing list on our website. That's TMEPShow.com. And you can send us comments and suggestions at hello at TMEPShow.com. We'd love to hear from you. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Evergreen Podcast Network.